Welcome to Reception Insider. I'm Kathy Back from the RACGP's Tasmanian Faculty. And I'm Anne Davis with the New South Wales and ACT Faculty. And today we are talking about managing patient data. Managing patient data sounds a bit dry, Anne. Yes, it does. But being effective at looking after patient data can really improve patient quality care, as well as ensuring that our bills are paid. Well, that's very important. <laughs> okay, so when we're collecting information for our patients, we need to collect information that includes things like name, address, date of birth, phone, home and mobile, work if available, gender as the patient describes, next of kin or an emergency contact with their name and phone number, if the patient has allergies, do they identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander? You need to ask all patients this question, regardless of their appearance, you need to ask that question. And it's always good to get a list if, of the medications they're on if the patient knows that. Otherwise, the doctor can get that when he's with the patient or she is with the patient. That is a lot of information. I guess when we're thinking about information we collect from patients, it falls into a few broad areas. So the first one is clinical information, and that's what you're describing. This is usually gathered by doctors and nurses during the course of a consultation, but it does also include information that external parties send us, such as discharge summaries from the hospital, pathology results, or letters from specialists. Another area is all the socio and demographic information, which is really the bulk of that list that you've just described. And then the final set is the financial information. So in particular, what we've invoiced the patients and then if and how they've paid that particular invoice. Correct, correct. And I guess we need to also find out, you know, are they on a pension card, a healthcare card, DVA card, workers' compensation, all those kinds of things in that financial information as well. Oh, plus if they are a workers' compensation, we need to know. Definitely. Their claim number is, who's the organiser, who the insurer is, and then importantly, how do we actually send that invoice to the insurer? Yes. Because I know that recently a lot of them are moving to email only. Yes. And you need, of course, the employer information then too because you need a contact from the employer in order to keep things moving. So I guess the usual approach to gathering this information is that the patient would arrive, you would give them a form and the receptionist will then enter that information into the practice management software. So some innovative practices I understand are now using software that allows the patient to complete the form using a device and the information is populated into the software electronically. For example, they might have an iPad in the waiting room that the patient can then use to fill in all that data. I love this electronic transfer of patient data. The reason being is that we're all human and we're human and make mistakes. And we do make mistakes when we're transcribing the information from the form that the patient's completed. Absolutely. The receptionist has to read the patient's handwriting. So that's not always as simple as you would imagine. <laughs> no, no. This transcription error can result in problems. For example, if there's an error in the date of birth, this may mean that the patient is missed in a data search for a particular vaccination. And this may impact on the quality of the patient care or a transcription error on the Medicare number may result in a failed bulk billing payment. But sometimes it's actually the information that's not in the patient's record that has the biggest impact on the patient's care. For example, if the phone number is not correct, 
how can we contact the patient urgently about abnormal pathology result? Or if the address has not been updated, an ambulance might be sent to assist the patient, but then arrive at the wrong address. Exactly. And this is where the patient identification process is so important. We can identify the patient as well as ensure that we have the correct information and continually keep our database updated with the correct information. So when a patient comes in contact with us, we need to get three approved patient identifiers. This really is because it helps to maintain the patient's safety and confidentiality. There's a decreased risk of identifying the patient. For example, there are lots of John Smiths in the world. It also ensures that health practitioners have the correct record for each consult, particularly when you have multiple people in the practice with similar names. It's a really vital thing. So we need these three identifiers at several times in our contact with the patient. So when the patient makes an appointment on the phone, or if they come into the practice to make an appointment, when the patient arrives at the practice for their appointment, when you communicate with a patient over the phone or electronically, if a patient phones and asks for a repeat prescription, or if a patient sees more than one practitioner during the visit, for example, if they've gone to see the doctor and then they are going to see the physio, so you need to check that twice. If a patient record is accessed, or if you collect and manage information, so for example, if you've scanned an x-ray result and you need to then make sure which patient file it's going into, those sorts of things. So things that are approved identifiers include things like the name, the family and the given names together are one identifier. A date of birth is another identifier. The gender that the patient identifies as is another one, as is the address and the patient health record where it exists. So when we are talking about three approved identifiers, the practice can choose which particular identifiers that they will have the receptionist ask. And I do note that a patient's Medicare number isn't one of the approved identifiers. And I understand the reason for that is that some Australian residents and visitors do not have a Medicare number and some may share numbers if they belong to the one family. That's right. That's right. We need to be mindful of the privacy when asking the patients this information too. Shouldn't just broadcast it out into the middle of the practice. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Most practices have really tried to make their reception space as confidential as possible. They might have a line on the floor for patients to stand behind. There might be some signage requesting patients to stand back until called. But I do note that those COVID perspex barriers, they're really great barrier against the virus, but they're actually a bit of a good sound barrier as well. So how the receptionist asks for that information is really important. And whilst we need the patient to provide the information rather than just confirming what the receptionist says, there is quite an art to asking those questions, isn't there? There really is. And I think that most of the receptionists listening will have their own little tricks of how they can get around this. I've done things like asking the patient for their driver's license or possibly their Medicare card because there is a lot of information on that. That as well. And some practices, I think, also have a bit of a prompt sheet at reception just to remind staff firstly to ask for the identifiers, but then how to frame those questions. 
Absolutely. And I think it's important not only to ask the questions, but for the receptionists need to explain to the patient the reason that they have to go through this identifying process each time, particularly in a small community where you know the receptionist really well, it would be annoying. And I think that as long as the patients understand that it is for their safety and making sure that we're keeping accurate patient records and details, it's very important to continue it. Patients can get very understandably frustrated in small connected communities. So I think if they understand the reasoning behind questions, they'll be much more compliant. We are fortunate, though, in that we do have legislation that supports this good practice, in particular the Privacy Act. And part of that says that we must safeguard the privacy and confidentiality of any information that we collect from the patient. That's right. And look, in closing, the data that we have from the patients is vitally important. It's one of the most important things that we have in the practice. And we have to look after the patient's records and their data very closely. And it's a vital importance to the reception staff to keep that data up to date. I think keeping it up to date is such a safety issue. So if you can always make sure that you check every time a patient comes in that they are still at the same address and at least that they still have the same mobile phone number as as well as the third identifier, then you're doing a great job. Thank you. So that brings us to the end of this podcast on patient data management. Thank you for listening and thank you for doing what you do.